I uh, started working, wrote some things uh, kind of for introduction for this sermon on Monday and then Tuesday morning. And uh, sadly, the first thing I wrote was, how many of you remember ISIS? And, and my next point was going to be to go back to some things that happened five or six years ago. And then by the time the end of the week came around, ISIS was taking responsibility for bombings in Afghanistan. And so it's very hard to n- not remember who ISIS is at the moment. Uh, but when I started with that and, and thinking about that, what came to my mind whenever I hear ISIS, which is a terrorist, Islamic, fundamentalist terrorist state, of, uh, is something that happened five or six years ago. It was on a, a beach in Libya where they took about 20 guys that had professed to be Christians and they marched them out on a beach and had them kneel down. And they came and cut their heads off because they would not... Uh, say anything about Jesus, against Jesus. They would not renounce their faith. And these men were martyred for their faith as they claimed that Jesus alone is Lord. And I remember that so vividly, that picture uh, of just the still pictures of these men being marched out on the beach to be killed in that way. And then we saw this week that ISIS is still alive and well and still persecuting people and going against those that believe differently than them. And so persecution is alive and well in the day in which we live. It's not something that just happened a long time ago. It's not just something that happened in the ancient Near East, but it's happening today. In fact, as I was was studying this week, I could never find a firm number, and, and maybe we just don't know what the firm number is. But everything that I read, it seems to to point to that between about 11 on the low end to 300 on the high end, uh, Christians are killed each day for their faith. That pretty much everybody agrees that at least 11, and then some places say that it's it's way more than that. But the, the simple truth is we have brothers and sisters around the world that are being killed because they claim the name of Jesus. And it happens every single day. And it's happening today. And it's happening all around the world. And so it wasn't just a long time ago. It wasn't just we read this passage in the book of Daniel that took place 2,700 years ago in the Babylonian Empire and go, yeah, well, that happened then, but it doesn't happen now. That's not true. It still happens today. And it's still happening around the world. And so it's not just uh, here, Nebuchadnezzar, the king over Babylon, requiring allegiance to him and what he believes in his gods. But people are still doing that. And so, uh, and, and I would say even though it's happening around the world, it's happening in our world right here. I mean, where we live in the sense of we are being called to give allegiance to things that go directly against what God says daily. Now, thankfully, and we should continue to thank God for this daily, we live in a place where our lives are not in danger for holding fast to the things that God tells us. But they are being uh, attacked all around us. And so I say that as we start because there is a clash of worldviews. It's a very real thing that's happening. Uh, If you were with us when we started this series in uh, Daniel, the very first week, I said this idea of Babylon runs throughout the Bible, right? Now, Babylon is a very real place. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in Babylon. That's where they live. That's where the book of Daniel takes place. But there's also an idea that runs all the way throughout the Bible, that the idea of Babylon, the allure of Babylon is this call to bow down to the idols of the age, the wisdom of man, 
to ignore what God says and hold fast to what our culture says. And that's been going on since the very beginning, all the way through scripture up till today. That's still a very real thing that's happening. And so I say all that as we begin this morning, because I just want to remind you when we read this story, and this is a very familiar Bible story. We often refer to it as the fiery furnace. And maybe you remember that from Sunday school, if you grew up in the church and it can be so familiar that we can forget how truly relevant this is to every one of us, even today. This is not just a, a story that happened a long time ago that we tell the kids when they're little, but it's who God is and what he is like and how we are called to be faithful to him in every generation and really how he is faithful to us in every generation. And so this morning, as we, we think about just the world we live in, I want us to think about how do we hold fast to what God calls us to in the midst of a generation that is calling us to all sorts of different things. And so the way I want us to look at chapter three today is simply this. I want us first to consider the issue that's at hand, what's happening here to them. And so we'll talk about the story, but also what that means for us today, how we're dealing with similar issues today. Maybe they look a little different, but it's the same heart. And so what's the issue at hand? Secondly, what do we do in the face of this? And I'm just gonna preface this with, it's not easy. What we're called to do is not easy. And so the last part that we'll talk about is how is that possible? Because it's not easy, how is it possible, right? So what is the issue? What do we do? How is that possible? So let's just start with the issue that is at hand. Pretty familiar story. King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been introduced to in the first two chapters, who is a pretty rough guy. His solution to everything is if you cross me, I will kill you. That's kind of the way he operates. We saw that last week with, with Daniel as he's interpreting his dream. We've seen that all the way through as we've just talked about the history and kind of background of Babylon and what was going on. And so he sets up this giant golden uh, image and says that when you hear the music played throughout the kingdom, you bow down and worship. And so it's this huge golden image about 90 feet in height. And so people would see it from all over Babylon. And when you heard the music, you were called to bow down and worship it. And so it says in, in the second half, of verse five, when you hear the music that's being played, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship immediately shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And so very real is you either give your allegiance to the things that Nebuchadnezzar is calling you to, or we'll kill you. It's pretty straightforward, right? That's what he says. And so word gets back to him that these three guys that we were introduced to in the very first chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are friends of Daniel. If you were with us last week as we got to the end of chapter 2, Daniel has given the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's so excited that he could tell him what his dream was and what it meant that he then gives Daniel a promotion, and he says, well, what about my friends? And so he gives them a promotion as well. And so Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have come in. They've, they've kind of gone to school, basically gone to university in Babylon. They've become productive members of society. They've been promoted and they're doing a lot. But word gets back to Nebuchadnezzar that these guys that he's given a, a promotion to are not bowing down to his idol, right? They say in verse 12, these men, O king, pay no attention to you and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar is furious. And so I want us just to think for a second what he's calling them to, right? I, I think I even said last week wrongly that Nebuchadnezzar set up a golden image of himself. I always read it that way. I don't know why. I just always think, well, it's an image of himself to make much of 
But it doesn't actually ever say that. It just says it's a golden image. It never tells us what it looks like. But it does give us a hint to what it's about in verse 14 as they bring Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar. And he says in verse 14, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? He says, is it true you don't serve my gods? And so what we can kind of gather from that is this image is representative of the gods that they worship in Babylon. We could summarize it in that way. That he's calling them to bow down to his gods, his values, his beliefs that he sees essential to the kingdom of Babylon. That's the way we could summarize what's happening here. We still don't know what it looks like or exactly what the image is, but you need to bow down and worship this. And so when we think about this, I wanted just us to think for just a second about how this is very similar to what happens in our culture today. That's not just something that happened a long time ago. Now, I don't know about you. I've never, I've never been presented with bow down to a golden idol, an actual idol in my life. I don't think anybody here would probably say that that's ever been something that's come up. But we are constantly bombarded with ideas in our culture that our culture would say, and if you don't believe this, you're regressive or you're a bigot or you're wrong or you're whatever it may be. And we do it in so many ways, right? We could easily come up with a whole lot of examples of what they are for a couple that immediately come to mind for me is that any intelligent thinking person will fully accept that we are the product of evolution that got here by random choice and accident and that there is no creator and there's no reason to believe it because science has explained this and so you don't need to believe anything like that and if you do you're believing a fairy tale or you're regressive or you're all those are uneducated and that's a regular thing that you will hear today throughout our culture And so you will be kind of inundated with that idea that if you're a smart person, if you're an intelligent person, you will believe these things. Or or maybe uh, in our culture, and and I've seen it change in my lifetime, sadly. I'm 44 years old and I've seen this change greatly in my own lifetime. But today there is this thing in our culture that says uh, that it is morally good and right And now in in this day to be celebrated that you should always have the choice at any point in your life to end your child's life during your pregnancy. At any point. And that's growing louder and louder. And if you don't believe that you're wrong and you're not for choice and you're not for all these things and it's framed in a way that you should accept this idea. And so we, we are inundated with these things day in and day out. We could go down the line about sexuality and gender and the way our world is changing and the way we see those things. And if you don't accept those changes, then you're a bigot and you're go to, you could, you can fill in the blanks. You've heard those before and they're all around us in so many ways. And so it's easy to go, well, no one's ever actually asked me to bow down to a golden statue. That's true. But they are certainly expecting you to bow down in whatever way it looks like. And our culture is rapidly changing around us. And so the issue that's here that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, allegiance to Babylon or brutal death. Thankfully, we don't live in a place where it's brutal death, but we are certainly being called to give allegiance to Babylon in a whole lot of different ways. And so what they're dealing with is very much what we're dealing with in our own day. Now, There's a second part of that, that allegiance is kind of a sliding scale. And if you read closely in Daniel, you'll see this. 
We, we get Nebuchadnezzar seems okay with um, them worshiping their own God. We saw that at the end of chapter two. Daniel comes in and he gives them the interpretation to his dream and he tells them and he goes, hey, everybody, give it up for Daniel's God. He's pretty great. He, he revealed this mystery and that's cool. Even here, the way he talks to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and even as you look at the end of the chapter, when, when we see God bring them through this, he's like, yes, give it up for their God. That's great. He's one of many. And I'll continue to say that. You continue to see Nebuchadnezzar saying that. But what you see all the way throughout this book is this idea of kind of a pluralistic society and what it looks like. He's cool as the king with you worshiping your God, but you got to kind of keep it on the uh, out of the public square. You still have to accept there's, there's a whole lot of gods and that Babylon has other gods. And you can have your belief, but just don't bring it into the public square where it affects every part of your life. And that's the same today. People say you can worship whatever you want, you can worship in any way, but where it becomes a problem is when you begin to actually live your life based on the things that God calls you to. And you start to say, no, this is what God's word says. And then they go, oh, slow down. It's fine for you to believe that in private, but keep it in private. But there's a problem as a follower of Jesus and all that. We, we say this every week here, or I say this every week, just about, is that our goal here is to make disciples who make disciples. That's the mission that Jesus gave us. Go make disciples of all nations. That's what Luke read right at the beginning from Matthew chapter 28. And so we define discipleship as growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. Every area. Not just the private parts, but the public parts. Every area of our life, we want to be obedient to Jesus. And so when the world says, you can believe whatever you want, just keep it to yourself. That goes against what Jesus calls us to when we think about being disciples that are growing in obedience to him in every area of our life. And so it's important for us to be able to differentiate those things. And so we're being inundated with the world that tells us that you need to do uh, to live these ways and you can have your faith, but keep it private. And we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that that is so pervasive all around us. Right? The spirit of Babylon is alive and well today. That the demanding allegiance to what it says, just as Nebuchadnezzar was doing with these guys here in 2,700 years ago, the world's still saying the same thing. And we get bombarded with it. I was struck by a, a study I read this week because I was trying to think of different ways in which we see that. And the study that I read was talking about uh, 18 to 23-year-old males and their view of sex outside of marriage. And so the way they set up this study was they took a, a, a group of all males from 18 to 23 and half of the people that they interviewed had grown up uh, with kind of a secular worldview that there's nothing wrong with sex in any way in which you want to enjoy it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be in the confines of marriage. You can do whatever you want and that's good and it's a good thing. And the other half in the study they took uh, that had grown up with a Christian understanding of sex, which the Bible says sex is to be joy enjoyed Inside the covenant of marriage, one man and one woman in a committed monogamous, monogamous relationship for life. That summarizes what the Bible says. Right? And so those that grew up with that. But then what the study did was come together and see, well, how many of those were living out their conviction? And what they found is those that had grown up with there's nothing wrong with sex in any way in which you want to enjoy it. 23% of those interviewed, 18 to 23 were still virgins, had not yet had sex outside of the confines of marriage. 
Of those that grew up in the church, 28% were still virgins that had not had sex outside the confines of marriage. And they were almost the exact same. So it was so kind of jarring and saddening to it. Is that here's what the church says, here's what the Bible says, here's what God calls us to, and here's what the world says, and the world's overwhelmingly the majority, the world's view of it. It's a negligible difference between 28 and 23%. And why is that the case? What has happened? And so the world inundates us with ideas all around us. You can believe whatever you want. You can believe what you want about sex. That's fine. Keep that in private. But in the public, this is the way we operate. And the reality is we have so bowed down to that understanding in so many ways that we look just like the world, right? The statistics say that we're exactly like the world as it comes to this issue. And that happens in so many things in a pluralistic society because the pressure is so great to assimilate. And so we may not be uh, faced with a, a golden statue that we're supposed to bow down when we hear the music, but we are certainly being pressured to bow down to the idols of our age. And in a lot of ways, we are. And so what do we do in light of that? And I hope you see that what they're dealing with here and what it tells us about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is so vitally relevant to us because we're dealing with the same things. So what do we do? And so look at what happens. Follow the story with me. Verse 15, they bring them before uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They bring him in and he says can't believe, you know, kind of like, I can't believe you guys that I've given, I've given an education to, and I've, I've given you this great job and I've given you, uh, promotions and you're going to do me like this. You're not going to bow down to my idol. That's basically what Nebuchadnezzar says. And he says, just so we're clear, when you hear the music, you're going to fall down and you're going to worship and everything will be well and good. That's verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. And who is this God who will deliver you out of my hands? And so he tells them, yes, you've gotten this promotion. And yes, you're doing great for me. And you're all these things, but you're not exempt from this. You either bow down or you too will be killed. And so this is one of my favorite interactions in all the Bible. As they, as they respond to him, verse 16 says, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer to the king. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They go, we don't even have to answer your question. There is no question in our mind. We are holding fast to what God says and nothing else. And so we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, living in Babylon, and where do we draw the line, and what does that look like? And what we said is we draw the line where Babylon is asking us to do something that goes directly against God's word. And that's what's happening here. They're drawing the line. They say, we don't even have to answer you because we've already decided that that's where we draw the line. Because remember, what they're asking them to do is to bow down to another, a false God and this idol that we've set up. That's the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And these guys know that and they're wanting to honor God with their lives. And they go, we don't even have to answer you. There's no way that we're going to do this. And so part of that is, is resolving in your mind that we're going to hold fast to what God tells us. But there's something much more there. Because look at the very next thing that they say, right? That's the dividing line. But then verse 18, it says, but if not, 
right? So if God doesn't save us out of this, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And there's something so important here when we say, well, how do we stand firm in the world with what they say here? And it reveals kind of their heart behind serving God. They're saying here that we are going to hold fast and we are going to love God above all else. But then they add to that. They're saying, in a sense, to Nebuchadnezzar, we don't love God for what we can get out of the deal, but we love God for himself. And even if he doesn't save us out of this, we are still going to honor him even unto death. But if not, we're not bowing down to your idol. And what you start to get there is that these guys love God for who he is, not what he gives them. They love God for God and for him alone. And he deserves all worship and honor and glory, whether he saves them out of this issue or not. And that's what they say to Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, it doesn't matter. We're still not going to bow down to this. And what it does is it reveals something very important about our heart as we approach God and the way that we see him. Do we worship God for who he is or do we worship him for what he can give us? Or do we worship him for what we think we'll get out of it? Or do we see God for who he is and we are so taken with his glory and brilliance and his beauty and his might that we worship him no matter what? And that's what they say here. We're going to worship God no matter what. And so at different times, we can fall into that kind of thinking of what God gives me out of this. I don't know if you've ever had an issue in your life where you are pleading with the Lord. Maybe it's uh, sickness or uh, someone you love or you're praying for them and you're so certain and you're praying in faith and you're asking God that he would change this thing and he would do it exactly how you want him to. And the answer comes back, silence. It's, it's your fiery furnace moment. And instead of skating right through as we read here, you get burned. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had that where you feel that and then you go, but God, I, I love you and I served you and I've been following you and I asked you for this and you didn't answer. And I'm not making light of that. I think if we went around the room, we probably could all tell of different times like that. It's really difficult. And we we're so sure and we were asking in faith and we were clinging to it and it seems like the answer is silent. But what that does is it starts to open up our heart about how we're approaching God. Am I worshiping God for who he is or am I worshiping him for what he gives me? Do I say like they do here, but if not, I'm going to worship you. But even if you answer in a way that I don't understand and it doesn't seem like what I was after and what I wanted, will I still then stop and say, but you alone, God. And that's what they do here. And it gives us a valuable insight in the way in which we approach God. Are we worshiping God for God or are we worshiping him for what he gives us or what we think he'll give us or he should give us? And so as we've been going through this series in Daniel, this is the fourth week now, and we're going to sing it in just a minute. We've been singing a song a couple of times. We didn't sing it last week, but we sung it a couple of times in this series. And I picked it because of verse 18 here in chapter three. But if not, and it's a song called, Though You Slay Me. And it talks about trusting God in everything. And the words of the song say, Though you slay me, I will worship you. 
though you take from me, I will bless your name. And it talks about how in all things we're going to trust that God is enough. And the song came from Shane Bernard wrote the song. Uh, it comes directly from Job chapter 13. Job says this, crying out to God, though you slay me, I will put my hope in you. It's where it comes from, if you know the story of Job. And he's saying that, but the guy who wrote the song, his father had just passed away very suddenly and was praying that he would be healed and that God would answer this prayer and his dad died. And so he sat down and he wrote the song. And his way of saying that, God, you are enough. Even when everything else seems to crumble around me, I am going to trust you. Though you slay me, I'm going to worship you and you alone. And so, no, that song can bring up a whole lot of things. Had some conversations even about that song recently. And you go, well, God doesn't slay us, right? We're going to sing, though you slay me. But actually, the, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign over everything. Now, in the book of Job, when Job says, though you slay me, God didn't take his family from him, but God allowed it to happen. Satan came and said, I'm going to attack you. I want to go after Job. And he says, okay, you can go after him. Just don't take his family. And so you could say Job's incorrect in the sense of saying, though you slay me, God didn't do it. God didn't do evil or wish evil on him, but God in his sovereignty allowed it to happen. But here's the thing I want you to consider as we just think about that song and singing it and the way we come to God and the way that we approach him in these things. God is perfectly just to end any of our lives whenever he so chooses. And he'd be perfectly just in doing so. And in fact, you see him do this at different times in the Bible. I'm thinking of Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. You know that story? They sell some land and they bring it before God and they say, we're, we're giving all the money that we just got from selling this. And that's not true. They held some back. They were giving most of it, but they kept some back. But they made this big show before the church. Look at what we're doing. We're giving it all to God. And Peter says, why have you lied to God? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And they drop dead. God says, that's it. You're done. And God was completely just to do so. Now, those are big, heavy, weighty truths that come out in Scripture. But what we're saying here, and I think what these guys are saying as they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, is that, God, you are sovereign over all, and you are in control of all of it, and we're going to trust you even when we can't see why or how you're working or what that looks like. But if not, we're not going to worship anything else. And so that's why we've been singing that song. God, no matter what you bring or what you allow or what comes in my life, I am going to worship you that you are sovereign over all, that you have my good at heart and your glory, and that it's always going to be the end. And so I'm going to trust you in all of it. Now, if that's what we're called to in every situation and everything, but if not, God, I'm going to worship you. That's not easy. It's really hard. Right? Like if, if we just ended now, like, okay, go and try to do that the best you can. Like, oh, that's difficult. How do you get to like where they are here when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but if not, we're going to continue to trust God in everything. And so I want to just give you a couple things to think about 
The first one I would say is that we continue to fix our eyes on God and see him for who he is, but we begin to, we fight to see the eternal over the temporal. So often we get lost in the moment. We become slaves to the moment. And that's every single one of us. Part of that is that the finite nature of our brains and our understanding, we can't, compl- we can't even get our uh, heads around the idea of eternity. It's too big of a concept for us to grasp. And so we become slaves of the moment. We get overtaken with emotions at the time. And we only see what's happening right now. But how do we get to a place where you face a fiery furnace says they heated it seven times hotter and even the people that were throwing them in got consumed because of how hot it was. And there you are standing on the edge of that and he says, renounce your faith or I'm throwing you in. And you say, do your best. How do you get to that? How do you get to a place where you go, but if not, I want you to think about this for a second. What happens if you're Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down or else? And you say, throw me in. And you get thrown in and God doesn't take you through that. You get consumed. What happens? Unbearable pain for a minute or two or five or ten. I don't know how long that would take. They've heated it seven times hotter. I think it would probably be pretty quick. But horrible, horrible pain. And then what? Then you stand before the God of the universe and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you enter into eternity of the glory that you were created for. And when you think about the difference between us getting caught in the moment, God, maybe if we're fortunate, gives us 80 or 90 years. But in the scope of eternity, what is that? I was trying to get my head around just the unfathomable nature of eternity. You ever stood on a beach and, and looked down as far as you can see as beach and ocean and you look the other way and as far as you can see is just beach and you've been down and you pick up the sand. You ever tried to hold one grain of sand? Like you kind of do it in your hands till you get one tiny little. That's your life in the scope of eternity of all the grains of sand or eternity. This 90 years or 80 years or 60 years or 30 years or whatever God gives you is one little grain of skin in the scope of eternity. And when we see that and we understand that and we start to fight to see that, suddenly those moments that, have put, that come before us, are you going to hold fast to who God is? Are you going to bow to the idols of the age and go, do your best? But if not, I'm going to praise you and I'm going to trust you. And so we fight to see for eternity in everything, trusting God, trusting what he has told us over my limited view in the moment. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, if those names mean anything to you. They were two reformers in England in the 1500s. And these two men were, were killed in 1555 in England. Queen Mary became Queen of England, Bloody Mary, and she decided that everyone was going to be Catholic again and started to go through her inquisitions. These two men were pastors at the time, and they brought them before and they questioned them on Jesus and what they thought about the church and grace and salvation. And they said, it is by Christ alone, by faith alone and grace alone and what Jesus has done. And they said, 
Wrong answer. We're going to burn you at the stake. And those two men were burned at the stake in the middle of the town in which they lived for standing firm about what Scripture says about who God is. And as they did, Nicholas Ridley cried out, Thank you, Lord, for letting me be a professor for you unto death. And Hugh Latimer turned to Nicholas Ridley and said, We shall see this day a light such a, we will light such a candle by God's grace in England that I trust that it will never be put out. And then they both gave up their lives. Because they saw eternity over the temporal. They saw the glory of God over the things that were in front of them. And so when we fight to see eternity over the temporal, and that's not easy. But the second thing is that we see that God will never leave you and never forsake you wherever it is and wherever he takes you. And so look at the end of this story and what happens, right? Pick up in verse 19. They say, we're not bowing down, but if God doesn't show up, we're still not bowing down. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face had changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and cast them into the fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. And so they tossed them in. Nebuchadnezzar is angry. All in keeping with everything we've seen of him. You cross me, you don't bow down, you die. And so he throws him in. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So what's happening? He throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and they get up and they walk around, and there's a fourth one there with them. What Nebuchadnezzar says is prophetic beyond what he even could ever fathom. And the fourth is like a son of God. Now, the fourth is not like a son of God. The fourth is the son of God. Jesus is there with him. See, in the Old Testament, prefigurings of Christ where Jesus shows up and he walks you through it. I was, I was thinking about, what was that like? What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego think when they saw him? Did they just know immediately, there he is? Did he say like, Hey, it's going to be fine. I gotcha. I don't know what he said, but I know that they were fine and they walked out and nothing was wrong and everybody went, whoa. As Jesus shows up in the midst of the fiery furnace and he walks them through it. He doesn't leave them or forsake them at their time of need. The hardest moment, he's there. Jesus tells us, I won't leave you or forsake you. I've got you in those moments. 
But what about the last part where they say, but if not? What about when it doesn't look like that? What about when it's Hugh Latimer and his buddy Nicholas Ridley being burned at the stake? Where was God then? How does that work? And so I want to end here as we just think about that. What if your days are numbered and you get a disease and you die tragically? Or what if you find yourself on a beach in Libya getting your throat cut because you won't denounce the name of Jesus? Where is God in those? And the answer is Jesus will never leave you and he will never forsake you in all things. No matter what it is. And so I just want to end here today. And maybe you know the story. I'm sure many of you do. But Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. There's a man named Stephen. And Stephen goes and he stands. And he proclaims the gospel before a hostile crowd. People are angry and they're upset at what he's saying. And he boldly proclaims that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to Jesus. And it's all about him. And now Jesus has come. And we've put him to death. But he has risen again and he is Lord over all. And Stephen stands up and says that. And they said, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Zach's chapter seven, verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. Stephen's first martyr in the New Testament. And he's killed for his faith. And as they were stoning them, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a Lord, loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Where was God in that? Jesus was right there. And it says he stood up. You know, it tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus and Jesus stands up. It's like, I gotcha. And whatever it looks like, and whatever the days, the way in which God has numbered our days, Jesus is with you in everything. And he will not forsake you, and he will not leave you. And eternity is on the other side of that. And so whatever it is that our world may throw at you and tell you that you have to renounce, that that's regressive or that's wrong or that's not it, you hold fast to who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But God alone is sovereign over all. And he's got you in every bit of it. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are faithful in all things. That you work everything together for good in our lives. For those that are called according to your purposes. That we can trust you in every way. Even when it seems the exact opposite of what we would want it to be. Even when there's times when we can't make sense out of what's happening or the way it's unfolding, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that on your timeline of eternity, it will all come together exactly as you have planned and we can trust you in that. Give us eyes to see the reality of eternity that you have set before us, that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. I pray that we would grow day by day in our trust of you in every situation. Help us to be people that 
are bold with great humility, knowing that all that we have and all that we are is completely by grace and that we would cling to that every day of our lives. We pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.